0: Hello, and welcome to an author debriefing from the International Spy Museum. I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Here at the museum, we get the most interesting authors, including journalists, scholars, former spies, and intelligence officers coming in to speak with our visitors and answer questions about their latest works dealing with espionage, intelligence, and other national security issues. Please join me in listening to another of our selected hour-long author debriefings. So good afternoon, welcome to the International Spy Museum. My name is Vince Houghton, I'm the museum's historian and curator. And I'd like to welcome you to another one of our author debriefings. Um, I'm going to keep my introduction short uh, because I actually really want to know and hear what Peter Duffy has to say. Um, Before that, however, a little bit of business taken care of. Uh, This Sunday, we have a a very special author debriefing, Uh, not a normal time. Uh, It's at 1 p.m., not a normal day on a Sunday. Uh, When I tell you about it, you'll see why we kind of jump through hoops a little bit to get this done. Um, it's an author briefing of a book coming out, or already out, called Sylvia Raphael, The Life and Death of a Mossad Spy. And it's about a woman who was part of Operation Wrath of God, which was the retribution for the 1972 Munich Massacre. Um, and the co-author of the book was actually uh, the director at one point for the School of Special Operations for Mossad, and the trainer for Sylvia Raphael. So this is as horse's mouth as you're gonna get. Uh, so. It's uh, so this Sunday at 1 p.m. Uh, here at Spy Museum, uh, free, like all our author debriefings are. So please, if you're around the area, uh, this is going to be fascinating. As is today's author debriefing, and I get the pleasure of introducing Peter Duffy, um, who since 1999 has been a freelance uh, journalist writing for the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, New York Magazine, The New Republic, and many other outfits. He's also an author of now three books, in uh, 2003, Harper Collins published his first book, The, Belis- the Bielski Brothers, uh, the true story of three men who d- defied the Nazis, built the village in the forest, and saved 1,200 Jews. Uh, I thought this was very interesting. It's been translated into French, Italian, Japanese, German, Italian, Hebrew, Polish, Chinese, Portuguese, Dutch, Swedish, Norwegian, and Russian. That's pretty impressive. Um, his second book in 2007 um, was published called The Killing of Major Dennis Mahan. Am I pronouncing that right? Close Enough, uh, A Mystery of Old Ireland, which tells a story of paupers in rural Ireland uh, who rose up to assassinate their landlord during the Great Irish Famine of uh, the 19th century. Uh, and this actually was chosen as an alternate selection for the History Book Club, uh, it was also offered, offered by the Book of the Month Club and the Military Book Club. But we're here to talk about his newest book, uh, which just came out in July, uh, titled Double Agent, The First Hero of World War II and How the FBI Outwitted and Destroyed a Nazi spiring. Uh, And that's what he's here to talk about today. Um, This is a story that has been told in the past, but never as well as it's told here. So if you know about the William Siebold story, if you know about these spirings, you will learn a lot of new things in this book. Uh, And to me, that's one of the greatest things you can say about a book uh, about intelligence, Uh, that it may be a story you think you know, uh, but but what Peter Duffy's done here is provided us with real new insight and new information about this really fascinating spiring that should be. Uh, in line to be a pretty movie that people might not believe is true uh, because there are some real interesting scenarios in this that uh, are almost too weird to be believable. So uh, you're not here to hear me talk uh, so without further ado I'd like to introduce to you Peter Duffy.
1: Thank you. It's a real pleasure to be here at the Spy Museum which is such a fantastic facility. It's just... Um, my experience in being, just going through uh, when I was researching this book and uh, uh, being a tourist here was, was, was fantastic. And I was first introduced to it by a man here I want to introduce is Ray Batvinas, who's a friend of the museum I know, he's a former FBI special agent, um, and uh, now a university professor and author, who uh, was a very helpful source for me in writing this book. He. Had, previously uh, investigated. He wrote a book, uh, a very important book, on um, the origins of FBI counterintelligence, which I, those who want to know more about how the FBI uh, became the counterintelligence agency that it became as it went into World War II and beyond, should check out Ray's work. Um, I mean, I have two other special guests that I will introduce during the course of the talk, with their permission, um, who are uh, intimately connected to the story. Um, but my story uh, can begin in a lot of places, this story of Bill Siebald and the what was known as the Duquesne spy ring. Um, I'll begin in early 1939 um, when William Gottlieb Siebald he boarded the SS Deutschland passenger liner at the West Side Piers in Manhattan and sailed for a Nazi Germany that was preparing for war. And he was carrying a single suitcase and a package. He left behind his wife in their East 84th Street apartment in the Upper East Side of Manhattan. And his plan was to visit his mother in his birthplace of Mülheim in the Ruhr Valley in Germany and recover from an ulcer surgery that he had recently undergone. When he arrived at passport control in Hamburg, he was taken aside by Nazi officials in plain clothes who questioned questioned him about his life in the United States. After learning that he had once worked at the Consolidated Aircraft Corporation of San Diego, which produced U.S. Navy seaplanes, the men promised ominously that Siebold would hear from them again. Now, up to this point in his life, Siebold lived, had lived a wayward existence. He was a mechanical draftsman, apprenticed as a teenager, and served from age 17 to 19 in the German army, uh, spending eight months in the trenches. Of, uh, in the Somme District during World War I. And turned off by the unrest of the post-war years in Germany, he took to the sea in 1922, serving as a junior engineer on an oil company vessel before jumping ship at the first stop, which was Galveston, Texas. And, and an illegal immigrant, he worked for a year in rural Texas, including for a time as a mule tender on a ranch, before re- returning to Mülheim to help his parents through economic difficulties. A year later, he returned to sea, this time jumping ship in South America, where he spent two years working as a bartender and later as a diesel engineer in Chile and Peru. And on February 13, 1929, he entered America, legally under the quota system for German immigrants. And over the next two years, he traver- traversed the nation, working for various industrial outfits in Oakland, Fairbanks, Alaska, San Francisco, Milwaukee, Erie, finally arriving in New York, where he married a German native uh, who worked as a live-in maid for a wealthy family on Park Avenue. And they uh, made, made a, a residence in the Yorkville neighborhood, which was a very German neighborhood, uh, the German neighborhood, really, of New York, um, a real center of, of German life, including after the, the, the rise of Hitler uh, Nazi supporters, the most public of, of which were the goose-stepping members of the German-American Bund, um, who very famously at a rally in, in, in Madison Square Garden, filled Madison Square Garden with Hitler supporters in 1939. Um, Sebald, however, took very seriously the oath he made on February 10, 1936, when he became an American citizen and pledged that I absolutely and entirely renounce and abjure all allegiance and fidelity to fidelity to any foreign prince potentate state or sovereignty I had nothing to do with Hitler anymore he later said I was an American citizen and so when he was contacted by regime officials as promised several months after arriving at his mother's home Sebald initially refused the startling offer to go to the United States as an agent for the Abwehr, the German military espionage service go there yourself he told the man but doctor Gastner, as the man introduced himself, um, proceeded to threaten Siebold, describing the clothes he would be wearing when he was laid out in his casket. In fear for his life, Siebold asked for the month of August to think over the plan. That's the month of August 1939, perhaps the most momentous month in world history, debatable, but it's up there. Um, On August 23rd, Uh, the Hitler-Stalin pact was announced which gave Hitler the opportunity to invade Poland without worry of interference from the great power to the east. And on September 1st, the same day that Hitler launched the blitzkrieg against Poland commencing World War II, Siebold decided to leave Germany. He went to the American consulate in Cologne seeking help and he was told by a consular clerk to make a run for the border. He flagged down two motorists with foreign license plates who refused to help Fearful that he was being followed by the Gestapo and mindful that he lacked proper papers to get past the checkpoints, Siebold gave in. He wrote a letter to Dr. Gassner saying he accepted his proposition 100%. In time, Dr. Gassner introduced Siebold to Dr. Renken, which was one of the many aliases for Nicholas Adolf Fritz Ritter, Nicholas Ritter, an English fluent Abwehr officer based in Hamburg. And uh, today we have Nicholas Ritter's daughter, who, uh, Catherine Wallace, who's in the second row here, um, just to 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 fill in slightly, uh, who she is and how she came into the story. Um, Catherine was a young girl during the war. Um, Ritter, who had lived in the United States in the nineteen twenties, had married an Alabama-born uh, woman, who he took with him to Germany. They had two children, uh, one of whom was Catherine. And by the time that Ritter met Sebald and brought him into the spy service, um, they were already going through a divorce and um, Catherine was a young girl who has an extraordinary wartime story that she's written about in her own memoir, um, which involves a divorce and a custody battle, kind of like Kramer versus Kramer melded with inglorious bastards, I don't know, but uh, it is a, a quite a story and um, she, after the war, came, came to the United States and um, um, currently lives in, in the Washington DC area and um, uh, speaks not with a German accent but with a thick syrup of the south. And, uh, <laughs> I don't know how thick, it's quite melodious, Um, um, but to get back to the story, and she was a great help in this book and a real, real peach of a lady. Um, Ritter uh, was looking for, at this point in the story, Ritter was looking for a man who he could send to New York as a messenger and a contact man for a small ring of spies he had already established here, and Sebald was nominated for the job. But Nicholas Ritter's great mistake, the strategic blunder that would lead to the spectac- spectacular downfall of his American spy ring, occurred on the very day he met his newest agent. Apparently, under, under Ritter's orders, Sebald's U.S. passport was stolen, likely so an agent who didn't have the travel advantage of le- legitimate U.S. citizenship could use it. Ritter then instructed Sebald to go to the U.S. Consulate in Cologne, the same place where Sebald had already attempted to tell his story and apply for a new passport through legitimate channels. Um, The passport reapplication process required Sebald to visit the consulate several times over the coming weeks, a period when the excitement of the early days of the war had subsided. And Sebald was able to tell his story providing letters from Ritter as backup to the Consul General himself Alfred W. Clyforth. In a cable to Washington, Kleiforth informed his superiors that Siebold was being coerced into the German spy service and that, quote, he requests that he be met upon his arrival in New York by representatives of the State Department in order to convey his story to them by word of mouth. Later he told them uh, to include the FBI, um, um, G-men is what he told them. I want to see the G-men. Um, Siebold underwent a total of 10 days of training in Hamburg. He was lodged at the Pension Klopstock, which was populated by other trainee spies. He was taught how to use a radio key to tap out messages via Morse code. Instructed in the use of, specially Leica, of a specially outfitted Leica camera to reproduce, blueprint, reproduce blueprints or documents onto a postage stamp size microphotograph which would be readable only with a magnifying instrument and he was schooled in a cipher system based upon the letter arrangements of a particular page which would change each day in the British edition of Rachel Field's best-selling historical romance, All This and Heaven Too. Um, Now the six or seven paragraphs that I write about this coding system is the hardest six or seven paragraphs I've ever written in my life, by far, to try to figure out actually how this thing worked. And I, I needed some help. And I'm not sure I still get it, but um, it's there for you to, your perusal. Um, Siebold was provided with addresses of mail drops in Shanghai, Sao Paulo, and Coimbra, Portugal. And he was christened Christen with the code name Tramp, a clear acknowledgement of his footloose life up till then and he was told to conduct business in New York as Harry Sawyer, a bland American name that would attract little notice. Finally, he was given $1,000 in American cash. which is about 15 or $16,000 when adjusted for inflation. I think about the, $2,000 was about the average uh, income of an American family in in 1940. Um, He was also given several microfilm documents of instructions hidden within the gears of his watch. Unaccompanied, but unsure if he was being followed, he took the train from Hamburg to Munich, changed for the overnight to Milan, and continued the next morning for Genoa. On January 29, 1940, the SS Washington pushed off from the northern Italian port, bound for New York City. Aboard was, uh, just as a side, was Liam O'Flaherty, the Irish novelist, who had written The Informer. which I would be, you know, it would be crazy not to mention the informer, since they had an informer on board. Um, The ship was met at quarantine in the Narrows uh, by a Coast Guard cutter carrying a State Department officer and an FBI special agent who asked Seabold if he he was willing to come to the FBI's New York office in Foley Square for further discussions. After two days of telling his story, he was asked if he was willing to become the FBI's first counter-spy, now the phrase double agent was not yet in common parlance. Uh, during the trial, uh, 16 months later, um, all the, it was covered quite extensively in the New York papers, including the great tabloids, the Daily News, the Daily Mirror. Um, the phrase double agent is not used once. Um, um, they actually quote uh, the prosecutor saying, the prosecutor instructed us that Mr. Siebold was a counterintellig- counterintelligence agent or counter-spy, as if this phrase and this idea was so new. Assigned to be Sebald's handler was James C. Ellsworth, a Mormon who had gained fluency in German as a missionary during his uh, missionary service in the late Weimar years of Germany. And he happened to be an inveterate diarist and letter writer and the family uh, Ellsworth family was extremely generous in sharing his, his diary and his letters. This is what he wrote in his diary when he first met Sebold. As I was getting out of the shower in the hotel room, Sebold came in. I found Sebold to be a tall, 6'3", thin, 157 pounds, German. He was big-boned, brown-eyed, and had brown hair. He spoke English brokenly, but as time went on, he spoke English very well. But the FBI, of course, uh, wasn't entirely sure that they could trust this this character with his incredible story. Um, I spent three years trying to get a file from the National Archives, which was uh, uh, the FBI had transferred it to the National Archives, and I have made uh, numerous requests and begged and pleaded. and finally got it right at the last moment to get it in the book, which included a version of what today would be a psychological analysis of Sebald. And I'll quote the words of um, Percy Sam Foxworth, who was the head of the New York office of the FBI. Sebald has an honest, honesty complex, he wrote. In fact, he is so honest that I am afraid someday he will give himself away because of his inability to act his part. He has a mania for doing just what he feels is right. For example, he says if the German government really knew him, they would never have entrusted him with the assignment which they gave him. And that he took this assignment knowing that he would never go through with it but knowing that he had to do something in order to get out of Germany alive. Further, Sebald's feelings for America were unequivocal. Quote, he states that an an oath to him is a sacred thing, and that when he swore to be loyal to the United States and a loyal United States citizen, at the time he was naturalized, he considered that a sacred oath, and he considers he renewed that oath at the time he was given a passport. He is of the opinion that if a man breaks faith with him in any respect, whatever, that man is not deserving of any further consideration with him. It is therefore apparent that if Sebald ever feels that the Bureau does not trust him or would fail to carry out any part of what he thinks is its contract with him, he would blow up and probably ruin the case. You can imagine that they were not entirely counting on this thing working, Um, but nonetheless, he checked out. Siebald insisted, and in his that he wouldn't go forward until they uh, uh, showed some faith in him, and they did so. In Germany, Sebald was instructed to contact four individuals. In this, the, there was, and this is an, an extraordinary cast of characters, which I'll just give a brief mention of these four. Um, there was. Frederick Jobert Fritz Duquesne, a monocle-clad South African native who, now 62, had enjoyed an outlandish career as an adventurer, author, bon vivant, soldier of fortune, playboy, and spy. He left many a dinner party spellbound spellbound with stories of his purported heroics during World War I and World War, uh, during the Boer War and World War I. His claim to have sunk the ship carrying Field Marshal Horatio Herbert Kitchener, who was the architect of Britain's war strategy during World War I, uh, was given wide airing in a, in a hack biography called The Man Who Killed Kitchener, which was published in 1932. Although the st- that story was untrue, uh, uh, Duquesne was an experienced saboteur who had committed violent acts against British interests. And he lived without the benefit of clergy, as the FBI put it in its reports, with a much younger girlfriend at 24 West 76th Street, uh, which is a half a block from Central Park, which I think is owned by a tech billionaire these days. Beautiful residence in an unbelievable location. There was Lily Stein, a 26-year-old Viennese Jew who was living in, on a, in an East 54th Street apartment and assigned to dis- seduce American and British officers of distinction into telling her their secrets. She had reached the United States by way of a visa provided by Ogden Agi H. Hammond, Jr., the young, callow vice-consul vice of the U.S. consulate in Vienna um, with whom she was having an affair, and a German passport that was furnished by Nazi spymasters eager to set up a Matahari operation in New York. Uh, the passport described her as a Mischling or half-Jew, even though both of her parents were Jewish. Uh, during, during one of their early meetings, Stein made a pass at Sebald, who rebuffed her advances. Why is it that you American men are always afraid of women? She said. Everything she said sounded like it came right out of a 1930s movie. Um, there was Everett Roeder, a Bronx-born Cornell dropout who had been working on precision weapons systems since 1916. He was an engineering genius and a gun enthusiast who was always showing off his weapons to Sebald, who was worried that if Roeder ever discovered his true identity, he'd be shot. He was blind in the right eye, which gives it a, a peculiar stare, wrote the FBI. Which brings us to our second or third special guest, which is Everett Roeder's granddaughter is here today, Dee Schumann, and um, who, who knew uh, Mr. Roeder as a, when she was a child. Um, and provi- provided extraordinary uh, help to my story. She, she came up to New York with a with a trunk full of the family secrets, which we went through in a Long Island uh, hotel room. We had an enjoyable afternoon. Um, uh, great lady, and thanks for coming. And finally, there was uh, Herman Lang, an ideological Nazi from a Bavarian mountain village, uh, living in Queens, who had already succeeded. In giving the Germans the plans for America's greatest pre-war secret, the Norden site, a scientific marvel that enabled airplanes to drop bombs with unprecedented, unprecedented accuracy. Sebald earned the trust of his spy contacts and the, and the circle widened. He began meeting with several naturalized Germans, working on the kitchen and dining staffs of the American flagged passenger liners, men who served as couriers, delivering intelligence and money to and from Germany. Included in this group was the chief butcher of the SS Manhattan, who came from Germany with a message for Siebold, which I'll read. This was in the spring of, 19, spring of 1940, after the, the, uh, the operation had been up a few months since February. One of the letters in the butcher's envelope to Sebald outlined the technical specifications necessary to make Morse code contact with Hamburg's Waldorf station. Using the funds given to Sebald in Germany, bureau agents obtained two receivers, a Holocrafters Sky Champion and a Hammerlund Super Pro, a refrigerator-sized 100-watt Holocrafters HT9 transmitter, later used to power a more powerful 500-watt transmitter, and various antennas, cables, supports and feed lines which, after failed tests in the static heavy New York office, were installed in a rented two-room cottage in a hilly area among the trees near Centerport on Long Island Sound. Quote, as the last solder connection was made and the blowtorch silenced, it was noted that the time was a few seconds before 7 p.m., the next regular calling time of the German control station according to the information given to Siebold, wrote Richard L. Millen a special agent flown up from Washington to to help set up the system. The receivers were tuned in to the designated frequency and the HT9 warmed up. Very shortly Morse code dots and dashes were heard. At first they were copied as R-A-O, R-A-O, R-A-O in in that they were too closely spaced and run together. Realizing this fact, the engineers soon separated the dots and dashes into the desired call of A-O-R, A-O-R, A-O-R. When the control station stopped sending, the bureau's undercover station began sending a series of dots and dashes in accordance with Sawyer's instructions. The transmitter was stopped after a few minutes, after five minutes, and the receivers turned on. The German control returned briskly with congratulations and instructions for the next contact. A working link had been established. Groundwork had been laid for the case to evolve. So over the next 11 months, this center port station run by the FBI received 167 messages from Seabolt's Hamburg spymasters, seeking a wide variety of information about airplane production, weather forecasts, shipbuilding progress, materiel exports, and munitions innovations. You must all get busy getting new men and detailed news, news, news went message went one message to Seabolt. From the U.S. end, an FBI special agent named Maurice H. Price, pretending to be Seabold, tapped out 301 messages to Hamburg, first approved by a government oversight panel that included Jager Hoover. The dispatches were often vaguely worded or outright fictitious. And in November of 1940, the Centerport station received a message from Hamburg wondering, what Siebold thought about setting up an account in a New York bank to which Germany could wire funds to pay this growing spy ring. I mean, an extraordinary coup. And after much debate in the New York office, the the FBI responded after five days. Since I have a, have I, responded in the, in the, in the words of Siebold, since I have good connections in diesel lines, I recommend opening a small research office, licensed, licensed, business name, and suitable space present no difficulties. As research offices continually need money, you can send me a large amount. The response came, we are in agreement, open office immediately, advise when and where you want the remittance sent and the highest amount possible for you to handle without suspicion. Um, Thus the coup de grace of the case. the FBI for this for the office, room 627, the FBI chose the gaudy heart of America, the Beaux-Arts building with French Renaissance ornamentation and copper mansard roof at the southeast corner of Broadway and 42nd Street in Times Square. Formerly the Knickerbocker Hotel, it was now an office building known for its most prominent tenant, Newsweek Magazine, whose staffers would remain ignorant of the huge story that was taking place on the sixth floor. Dealing directly with the building's owner, who offered to replace the manager if he wasn't cooperative enough, the Bureau rented room 627 and two adjacent offices, 628 and 629. In the days after the deal was reached in late November, agents created a stage set with the largest space occupied by the office of William G. Sebald Diesel Engineer, the words painted on the door of 627. The setup was centered around a large desk that was expertly bugged and within a few feet of a silver-coated two-way wall wall mirror behind which a bureau agent, usually Richard L. Johnson, was operating a spring-wound motion picture camera in a soundproof space. Quote, we just barely had enough light to make a picture and it was necessary to slow the camera down as, as slow as it would go and open the lens wide open in order to get a good picture, Johnson said. Positioned within his line of sight were a clock encased within a wooden frame whittled by Agent Friedemann, and a flip-page calendar, both of which had numbers large enough to be readily viewable to future jurors. Well, Siebold had his back turned to me at most times, said Johnson, and at some times he had his face, the side of his face, turned to me. Of course, we were more interested in the other person. The conversations in the room were monitored by headphone-wearing German-speaking agents, typically Friedemann and Fellner who could take the stand as eyewitnesses to bolster Seabolt's likely voluminous testimony, and recorded onto lacquered aluminum discs by the turntables of the state-of-the-art Presto recording system. By early December 1940, a telephone had been installed, phone number Bryant 91609, business cards printed up, and $5,000 in Nazi money wired through Mexico to Seabolt's new account at Chase National Bank. The first of three transfers sent via this this method totaling $16,500. From December 1940 until June 1941, the FBI recorded 81 meetings between Seabold and various members of the spy ring, including a Japanese agent and an Irish member of a branch of the ring that met in a bar up in Yorkville. A particularly helpful individual was Paul Fazy, who was a Marine spy who specialized in collecting information on British merchant ships leaving New York Harbor, which he hoped to relay to the U-boats who were sinking them in great numbers during these months. And I'll just give you, a, a, when this when this um, office really was run, up and running, it was new spies walking in every day. On January 25th, 1941, fazy introduced Seabold to the head of head chef of the SS America, who produced the ship's blueprints and pointed out for the camera where the gun emplacements would be located when the liner was transferred to the U.S. Navy, as was soon expected. On February 10th, Fazy wondered if Seabolt had ever heard of a courier named Walaszewski, which allowed agents to begin an investigation of one Adolf Henry August Walaszewski, a steward on the SS Uruguay of the Moore McCormick shipping line. On March 5th, Fazy identified George Shu a Nazi ideologue who was a commander of the Hudson County, New Jersey branch of the DAB, Nazi Front Organization. On March 12th, Fazy arrived with Heinrich Klosing, a vegetable cook on the SS Argentina, who sent messages to Germany through a mail drop in Brazil, and spoke of Richard Eichenlaub, the owner of the Little Casino Bierstube on Sebald's block of East 85th Street, which turned out to be the rendez- rendezvous point for another ring of spies, the 4th. Um, The last spy to visit the office was Fritz Duquesne, who stayed for three hours on June 25th, 1941, three days after Nazi Germany launched its massive surprise, land and air invasion of the Soviet Union, pushing the U.S. ever closer to war. And on Saturday, June 25th, and Sunday, June 29th, 1941, 250 FBI agents swooped in and arrested 33 Nazi spies. Still, the largest apprehension of foreign espionage agents in the history of the United States. Now, the 250 FBI agents. I think there were about a thousand FBI agents at this point um, in, in F- the FBI's history. So, this was quite. This was as, as large as uh, as uh, uh, they were going to go at this point. Uh, during the six-week trial in the fall of 1941, Siebold was finally able to tell the truth. The defendants and their lawyers portrayed him as a fearsome Nazi who coerced them into joining the spy ring. One, one of the Marine spies testified that Siebold said he would never see his mother again if he didn't support the cause. Another said, I was afraid of him. This was a potent charge in German America. Memories were fresh of the thousands of enemy aliens of German birth who were imprisoned on sketchy allegations of disloyalty during World War I. Siebold was seen by many of his own people as an an embodiment of a new anti-German cause, and indeed 10,000 German nationals of suspect loyalty would be interned during World War II. During the following week in, in Brooklyn, the nation was provided with a glimpse of the advanced techniques that were already being deployed against the enemy. After agents Friedeman and Johnson testified about Duquesne's single visit to the 42nd Street office, sound recordings were not admissible. Judge Byers made the following announcement. Members of the jury, I am going to ask you to come over to the other side of the courtroom. You will occupy the seats on this side. It may not be possible for some of you to see from the chairs, some of you may have to stand. If you did not observe anything, please interrupt and tell us. The courtroom was darkened and Johnson's films were projected onto a five foot screen behind the jury box. The American relationship with the hidden surveillance camera was born as the rapt audience watched 12 soundless minutes of Fritz Duquesne glancing through room 627, sitting down down opposite a partially obscured Seabold, reaching into his sock for his spy secrets and conversing animatedly. When the lights came up, reporters noted that Duquesne had a broad grin on his face. All my life I wanted to be in the movies, and when I made it, what did I do, he said, according to Agent Newkirk. Sit there and scratch my ass and pick my nose. The Times scoffed at how the government had resorted to the use of motion pictures in open court. Wrote Ellsworth, I think Duquesne is convicted now. I think there was a direct line from this scene to Mary and Barry in a hotel room. <laughs> I'm going to write an essay about that. Um, and in the early afternoon Berlin time on December 11th, 1941, four days after Pearl Harbor, Adolf Hitler formally declared war against the United States. At midnight on the following day, December 12th, a jury of nine men and three women, after eight hours of deliberation, delivered guilty verdicts on all counts against all the defendants. In dismissing them from their duties, the judge saluted the jurors. It will readily appear that you have rendered a very substantial contribution to the welfare of the country, which you and I hold very dear. And so they had. Sebald had already disappeared into an early version of the witness protection program. After the trial, he was relocated to a small home in Walnut Creek, California, outside of San Francisco, where he had reason to fear for his life. When the Nazis sent eight saboteurs to the United States in 1942, one of their assignments was to exact revenge on Bill Siebold I tell you, there is no stone big enough for him to hide under, said one of the organizers of the saboteur's mission, which, however, was foiled almost immediately upon landing in the United States. Siebold worked as a night watchman on the docks at Mar- in Martinez, California. He, he ran a chicken farm for a while. He worked briefly at the Walnut Creek Post Office, but lost his, it was a part-time job, but lost his job because of a disagreement with the postmaster he wrote in uh, one of his resumes that his family very generously provided me with. Um, he was the cleanup man at a, at, at, the, at a bar named the Club Diablo, which I guess we can imagine that, what that was all about. Um, he, he suffered uh, from manic depression in his later years at a very sad ending. Um, um, to his life. Uh, when he died, which I go into in, in detail in the story, uh, when he died on February 16, 1970, no obituary appeared in any newspaper. Um, but he had, he had achieved briefly uh, a measure of what he sought. Um, uh, Jim Ellsworth, his, his, uh, the uh, FBI handler, described a sightseeing visit to George Washington's home in Mount Vernon that he took with Siebold during a break in the trial. This is a letter that Ellsworth wrote to his parents. And he said, here was Bill's outstanding item of the trip, Ellsworth wrote. He admired the simple mansion, the outhouse organization. That is a building for the kitchen, one for the spinning, one for the tools, one for the smokehouse, the greenhouse, the laundry, et cetera, each with its living quarters for the slaves doing the work there. We spent much time there and Bill said that he, that was the kind of life he wanted. A little kingdom not dependent on anyone for its existence. I think in Walnut Creek, uh, he had that briefly until until his end. So thank you so much for your time and I'm happy to take any questions. Uh, thank you, Peter.
0: Um, we you be willing to sign some books for Absolutely. people afterwards? Great. Um, so before that, does anybody have any questions? Yes, ma'am. Uh, wait for the, she's, bring
1: a microphone over here for you. Hi, thank you. What happened to Siebel's mother in Germany? Oh, Siebel's mother in Germany, and was, this was a great worry of, uh, before he testified at the trial, he went to the FBI and told them, you've got to promise that you're going to protect my family. They said, well, we'll do what, he, what we can after the war, but there's really nothing we can do. Um, so he was extremely concerned about his family. Um, a mother, two brothers, and a sister. Uh, turns out his mother survived the war. Um, his sister and one of his brothers survived, and the the second brother was killed in an automobile accident in 1945. So they made it through the war, okay. So he had and she was still alive at the end of the war, and he actually hoped to visit her, but wound up never doing that. Catherine,
0: oh, I'm just okay, coming like with the, one mic.
1: For the mic. Sorry, <laughs> yeah. it's more for the cameras. Okay. Uh, in my father's book, he mentions counterfeit money and that he was, they used a great deal. of. Did you come across any of that? Well, they didn't. In, in, once Sebald came to no. New York, uh, I saw no evidence of that. No. I mean, they were, they were using American currency. Yeah. Okay. Ray? Peter, how did
0: you locate Mrs. Wallace, and how did you locate... Mrs. Schumann. That's a detective story, I'm sure, <laughs> in its own right.
1: So. And, and, well, uh, Mrs. Wallace wrote a memoir of her story, and I believe she gave an interview, if I'm remembering correctly, you gave an interview to a local newspaper. So I, that's how I learned where she was located, and then went through... Uh, uh, and we once I knew your name, then it was much, much in your location. It was easy to find the phone number. And D... Um, was a little harder, as I recall. I know that um, I, as uh, someone doing a project like this and wanting to find survivors from the story, you go to the obituaries and see who the survivors are. If I remember, Everett Roder's daughter died within the last 10 or 15 years, and your name was in the Obed and listed where you were living. So that's how I found her. I think the, the Sebalds, I also um, got to know two of S- William Sebalds' nieces. And was able to interview his sister-in-law, who was 90 in her 90s when I interviewed her. She since died. Um, I was lucky in that I ordered his, uh, his death certificate from, from Walnut Creek, California, and it came back with an address. That address was still being lived in by his family, so that was a very lucky I was very lucky in that.: uh, You mentioned a lot of people. In your narrative, who were involved in the steamship business? And I think one of the the mysteries of uh, uh, that business is the destruction of the liner Normandy. Any of these characters involved in that? Do you know? N- no, not that I had uh, saw any evidence of. Although that that is an, an amazing story that deserves uh, investigation. Maybe Ray can. Can. <laughs> you got enough, but no, I, I did. I saw no evidence of uh, that they were involved in that. But who knows? Maybe it's not something that's. Really an yeah, the an mm-hmm. great uh, French liner, which which uh, burned in New York Harbor.
0: Yeah. Let, me, let me ask: how, how much conversation was there about letting this ring continue on longer than they did? About stringing it out and seeing who else they could pull in.
1: Yeah, you know, it was, it was when, we, as we got closer to the war, and I, w- one thing that happened is one of the ships that the Germans attempted to inform the U-boats about, the SS Robin Moore, um, it was on a list of 11 ships that they had given to Seabold and sent to Germany. One of those ships sunk. It was uh, sunk by a U-boat, which is really the first U.S. merchant ship sunk during the war, the SS Robin Moore. Um, that happened, and slowly uh, there were uh, there was a few members of, of that wouldn't come up to the office anymore. Things started to get a little hot. Um, the, it's, I didn't mention it, but there was this one Irish member of the, of the ring. There were 34 warrants, and <laughs> 33 were served. So the one guy got away, and he was the Irishman. And the Irishman Sean Connolly was the guy who who wasn't sure about this office. The Germans all all bought it. They trusted Sebald as a, a man who fought in World War One and was of them. He was a, a mechanical, had a mechanical background, as many of them did. He spoke German, but the Irishman said, "There's something wrong with this." And he he talked amongst some of the German members who who, who quizzed Siebold in one evening, um, and and. Things of this sort were happening, and they started feeling, well, we have to wrap this up. And there were two um, uh, members that were preparing to to ship out, and they had to arrest them. Um, uh, They weren't yet charged with espionage, but they had to be held in circumstances that are a little, uh, not entirely above board. Um, So yeah. So what happened to the ones who were arrested, ultimately? Interesting that their, their, their prison terms were much shorter than they would receive today. I think the, the, um, the Espionage Act violations that the main spies were convicted of, they got 18 years, was the maximum of this, and then two years additional on, on, on the Foreign Agents Registration Act charge. So 20 years was the max these guys were getting, if I'm remembering that correctly, I think it's about that. Um, the, the the prison sentence ranges from 18, uh, sentences range from 18 months up to that, 20, 20 years. Um, so it was much, many of them were out long before the war. Most of them were out long before the war was over. Um.
0: Uh, Peter, what? Ray, Ray, Okay. Ray. okay. <laughs> Peter, what lessons can we draw today from this given the fact that we are encountering a uh, an entirely different world and uh, you know the FBI still has to deal with people who are facing issues of dual loyalty and the complexity of that and the difficulty of that can you comment on that Uh, perhaps see if we can draw some lessons from your experience
1: yeah you know and I think one point is that this German experience I mean German Americans were a significant community in the city of New York and in the United States, I mean, there were um, um, something like three hundred fifty thousand German-born and Austrian-born residents in the city of New York. That's about equivalent to the Chinese-born today. Um, so, first off, the German community and, and aspiring like this should be examined for for the. the um, uh, in the ways that you mentioned. um, I think most people don't realize uh, how significant the German American community was. Um, Lessons to be learned are interesting. I mean I think that this spy ring began very early when its its most devoted and dedicated members were active and sending secrets to Germany long before the FBI was even thinking about tracking them. Um, and that may be something very essential about, about counterintelligence, is that yeah. you really have to be aware when the rest of the country is not at all thinking about fighting a war with Germany. This is a case where the FBI was, I, I argue, was the only uh, entity of the U.S. government that was actually involved in the war from 1939 until 1941, when we really got in. Um, um, and it had to, because this was a very destructive ring, could have done a... A lot of damage. Um, that's, of course, a, a, a tricky job when counterintelligence and agencies like the FBI require public support, and and um, with with uh, uh, communities that. Uh, Will protest their their innocence, uh, even though this is a very minor a minority of this of the German American community. There were some, some real strong Hitler supporters. Um, so I don't. I'm certainly not involved as uh, someone who's uh, an expert on counterintelligence. All I know that the, these people were serious, and they were serious way before the the U.S. government was even thinking about it.
0: Well, please join me on behalf of the International Spy Museum and thank you, Peter Duffy, again. Thank you. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this author debriefing. We'd like to know if you have any questions or comments about it. You can get in touch with us through email at spycast at spymuseum.org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. We look forward to you joining us again for another of our author debriefings. And thanks for listening.